Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, this morning, we will uh, continue on in our series of practicing the way of Jesus. Um, we have been going through this now for two months, which is how long the decents have been on sabbatical. So we are at the, uh, actually a little bit over the 50% mark. So uh, that's exciting. We're doing it. We're surviving. Yes. Um, so uh, before we get into the teaching this morning, uh, let's just take some time in prayer and then we'll get started. Father, we are thankful to gather uh, in the name of your Son uh, on his behalf, um, filled with your Spirit, and we are uh, grateful that um, you meet us, that you don't leave us alone, um, but you are with us. Um, you are with us to the end, and uh, our life is one uh, not uh, of survival, but it is one of uh, thriving in the power of your spirit in your presence. And um, uh, we thank you for your love, your great love for us, uh, your patience with us, your loving kindness towards us. Uh, would our hearts be stirred this morning uh, in a way that you know is needed for each and every one of us uniquely? It's going to look differently because uh, you know your children really well. You know those whom you have created and uh, you know us better than we know ourselves. So thank you for that, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay. To start this morning, uh, we're going to go through a series of images, three to be exact. And it's a little bit of an exercise to kind of get us on the, uh, uh, the proper brainwaves for what we're going to be talking about this morning. So the first image. Some of you have probably seen these images before. They're called ambiguous figures. Um, so the first question with this figure is, don't shout it out, just lodge it here. What do you see? This is an image of what? So this, this picture uh, actually dates back to, uh, I think it's the late 1700s. Uh, it first showed up in like a German like periodical. Um, Now, I think everyone's had adequate time. Uh, actually, this will be really fun. Go ahead and everyone close your eyes. Okay. If you saw a duck, raise your hands. Great. Lower your hands. If you saw a rabbit, raise your hand. If you... Uh, very easily saw both, raise your hand. Okay, huh? pretty good. If you're saying, what the heck is he talking about? What do you mean a duck or a rabbit? Go ahead and raise your hand. All right, okay, honesty in the back, I like it. Okay, go ahead and open. Uh, next image. All right, another ambiguous figure or a dual image. Okay, same process, close your eyes. Who saw a young woman? Great, good. Who saw a man with a saxophone? Very good. Who saw both? 
Very nice, about 50% again. Okay, go ahead and open your eyes. All right, the last image. This one is also a classic. All right, study it, study it, study it. Close your eyes. Who saw a young woman? Good. Who saw an older woman? Ah, the minority. Very good. Who saw both? Oh, yeah. So this one, go ahead and open. So increasingly, um, the amount of people who were able to see both decreased with each, with each uh, picture. This one, I think, is the hardest. I think once you're locked into the, uh, the young woman, it is really difficult to see the old woman. So for those of you who can't see it, here's the chin of the old woman. Here's the mouth. Here's the nose. Here are the two eyes. There's kind of the head covering in the front of the hair. Yes, it's, it's difficult. Yes. It's kind of like what you would expect, like in Snow White, like what you would expect the, you know, what's her name, the, the queen when she gets all dressed up as the old woman and goes and tricks her with the apple. That's kind of what you'd expect maybe. <clears throat> Yes. So, other than just a fun exercise, um, the point with this is that we often see one side or one perspective of the image, and we can in usually initially see it so strongly that it becomes highly difficult to see the image any other way. Some neuroscientists would say it's actually almost impossible in some instances to retrain your neural pathways to see the image differently. And this exercise, although it's very fun, uh, it can be an archetype for how often we see and just what our perspectives are throughout our lives. Each of us lives with a lens, a set of biases uh, which shapes how we see the world, how we see God, and how we see ourselves. How we see is often what we see. And this often continues into how we see Jesus, specifically how we read and see him in the gospel accounts. And if any of you are like me, I know some of you are, then you were exposed to the Jesus narrative in some way or another very early on and have and even for those of us who have become very familiar with it, we have learned to see the gospel narrative in a certain way. The stories become familiar, his sayings familiar. So familiar, it is difficult to read and interpret the gospels in any other way. My bias, which may also be yours, is to look at the life of Jesus and see facts and information, specifically information that shapes my theology, my soteriology, and my eschatology. I see Jesus through my Western lens that puts a high value on information or knowing the facts, which are good things, um, and we're not disregarding those aspects. But this perspective naturally overlooks 
the reality or it comes from a place that um, has a difficult time recognizing and running through the filter that Jesus was a 30-year-old Middle Eastern man and the Gospels written by Middle Eastern men to a first-century Middle Eastern audience. Thus, even with great sincerity, uh, we may overlook or not fully appreciate all the nuances and the depth of the text without effort or deep meditation or study. It's really difficult to see a rabbit when we have always just seen a duck. I'm going to argue this morning that one of the most common aspects of the Jesus narrative that is missed by us today is not what he did or what he said, but how he did it. I believe we overlook how Jesus lived his life. At the, we overlook the pace. Ooh, that's loud, sorry. Matthew, can you bump it down just a little bit? Uh, we overlook the pace in which Jesus lived his life. Teachers and leaders in the way of Jesus have called attention to Jesus' slow, unhurried pace of life and have highlighted that this pace of life is a hidden discipline or a practice, kind of tucked between the lines of Scripture. This practice is often called slowing. So in our current season in the life of our church of zeroing in on the practices of Jesus, we are slowing down this morning to study slowing. This morning, I'd like to call your attention to two passages of Scripture that um, you may have not heard before or may be very, very familiar to you. But instead of reading them as we maybe normally would, I want each of you to do what many scholars would call reading behind the text and pay special attention to Jesus' pace, his pace during these passages of Scripture, his cadence, how quickly he's moving, how he is going about what he is going about, okay? So the first passage is Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip there or turn on your digital Bible, and we'll pick up there here in just a moment. And it'll be up on the screen as well. <clears throat> All right, this is Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet, and he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there, there was this woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had. And even with all this, she was no be better. In fact, she was worse. She had heard reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, 
immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched me? And his disciples looked at him and said, look at the crowd pressing all around here, all around you, and yet you ask who touched me? And he looked around to see, continually looking to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who'd said, Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher any further. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, Do not fear, just believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but she's sleeping. And they laughed at him. They, and, but he put them all outside the house, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, uh, something I can't say, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. All right, turn with me uh, to John chapter 11. We will pick up in verse 1. Again, the words will be up on the screen. <clears throat> now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, and it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, if you remember, and wiped his feet with her hair. This was her brother Lazarus, who was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, the one you love is ill. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This illness will not lead to death, for it is, the glory of, for, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus, he loved Martha and her sister Mary, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Then the disciples looked at him and said, Rabbi, uh, we were just there and the Jews were seeking to stone you, and you want to go back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If you walk in the day, if, if anyone walks in the day, he will not stumble because he walks or sees by the light of this world. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has not fallen asleep, has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll he'll wake up on his own. He'll recover. But now Jesus spoke, uh, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he just meant rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. 
but let's go. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I trust that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still off in a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were in the house with her, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he also was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, Look how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not, not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay across it. Jesus said, Take this stone away. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, and his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus lived his life at a pace that was patient, it was unhurried, and it was motivated by love. In a word, Jesus was relaxed. Consider the two texts we read this morning. First, we have Jairus and his daughter, the people who are coming to get Jesus. Jesus with the sea of people moving towards Jairus' houses. And even in a context like that, Jesus is willing to be interrupted. He's willing to stop. He's willing to uh, address this woman's needs who have come who has come to him. I, and I don't know about you all, but I put myself in that scenario. Even with the trivial things that I go about on a daily basis, it is really hard to be interrupted, to 
I have my agenda, I have what I'm doing. And even in that scenario, I'm like putting myself in Jarius's shoes. And I'm thinking Jarius has just gotta be like, what are we doing here? What, what, like, why are we stopping? Why are we halting? Why are we, you know, like we are going somewhere, right? Like Jesus mentally, like visually block out everyone else who would really like your attention and would you just like, you know, come to do what you're supposed to be doing, right? So, and in the situation of Lazarus, frustratingly, so you can hear the frustration in Mary and Martha and in the crowds who people are like, oh my gosh, like, you know, like look at Jesus's love for Lazarus and for his sisters. And some are like, yeah, he can like open the eyes of the blind, but he can't get here on time to like keep this guy from dying, right? So Jesus, in, in these ways that we can't even like fathom, he hears the news, he hears of it in plenty of time to go do something about it. And yet he stops he waits, and he goes after a delay to do um, to, to raise Lazarus from the dead. And it's just really interesting to recognize how Jesus, through, again, these stories that are very familiar to us, but we look at Jesus and we go, gosh, that's quirky. Like, that's, 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 that's a really peculiar way to kind of just, like, go about life. And we're just, we're this idea of just Jesus being relaxed, him being confident in the timing, him being confident in the outcome, him going about things uh, almost like he's operating within a different reality. It's almost like that. It's almost like he's operating in a completely different kingdom reality than uh, the kingdom of the world. And these texts, these texts this morning are not just, they're, they're just two of very many examples. Consider other examples in Scripture. As we read in, as we read in John chapter 7, uh, Jesus irritated his own siblings um, because of the pace and the rate in which he kick-started his ministry. They essentially effectively said to him, hey brother, like get the show on the road. Uh, but Jesus knew his father's timing. And later, as popularity started to swell, large crowds pushed in on Jesus day and night. We are, we are told even when Jesus tries to get away into the quiet and be with his father, it says his disciples are chasing him down. They're calling him back to the crowds. Everyone is looking for you, right? Like, hey, here's the opportunity, right? Your popularity's swelling. Like, come on back. Like, this is now, this is the time we're gaining momentum. And Jesus, his response is, why don't you guys come, come and come away with me as well to somewhere quiet. Let's go, or he says later, let's go somewhere else and let this simmer a little bit. Right? He's he's doing things that we we go kind of like, huh? Like if you're really trying to like, you know, we look at that and go like, what a perfect opportunity, Jesus. Yet he's stepping back uh, when popularity's starting to swell. He's 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 moving on. He's going somewhere else. He's retreating back to the quiet. Uh, and let's not overlook the fact that Jesus lived 30 years in obscurity. Then he started his ministry with 40 days in the desert. And even in the desert, note what the Satan, what the devil, tempts Jesus with. It's, he doesn't tempt him with anything that already isn't Jesus's or already isn't promised to him by his father. No, he tempts him to move up the timeline. He says, go on, son of God. What are you waiting for? Right? He says, take the power now. 
the kingdoms of the world, take them now. But Jesus strongly declines, for he has entrusted himself to the Father. And now let's come forward to our present age. What is our MO? We live at hurried breakneck speeds. Our norm is too much to do, not enough time. Or, uh, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm busy, right? Or, uh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Those kind of things. Our baseline existence is life without margin uh, of sleep deprivation, irritability, road rage, caffeine and stimulant abuse, vocational burnout, and fractured relationships. Fractured relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. We live in a culture of idolatry, which is placing an allegiance to something else above and before God. Richard Foster says it this way, our idolatry of affluence is rampant. Our greed for more dictates so many of our decisions. Notice how the fourth commandment, he's talking about the Ten Commandments here, notice how the fourth commandment of the Sabbath rest strikes at the heart of this everlasting itch to get ahead. We find it so very hard to rest when by working, well, we could get a jump on everybody else. There's no greater need today than the freedom to lay down the heavy burden of getting ahead. Personally, I guess I can, I can speak and I can, that resonates with me because I usually live at a jam-packed, hurried pace because I'm trying to serve my own self-interest and pursue my personal ambition to be seen as an impressive person. How are we all doing? Does this resonate at all, right? We, we hear that and we go, oh, that sounds like daily life. And we see Jesus and we go, I think I would be one of the people irritated with Jesus' pace of life, right? With him making time for others, with him being willing to be interrupted, with him uh, initiating his influence after 30 years of obscurity and in a very slow uh, and very frustrating manner, especially to his disciples who are like, hey, I'm looking at Rome, Jesus, and I'm looking at you, and you, you could kind of pick it up a little bit. Like, let's take care of things here. The call of Jesus is into a life that is lived at a pace driven by the grace of God. A pace where we walk with him in love and in trust and in faith. This pace is one that is patient and it is gentle and it is slower than what we, were, what we are used to. This holy slowing, it's a discipline. It's something we must practice. But here, what slowing is not. Slowing is not laziness. It is not an excuse to not work or to drag our feet. In fact, slowing is not antithetical to work or busyness. Jesus was very busy, right? If you think about 
if you think about what Jesus, there are several passages of scripture that describe Jesus where it was morning until night. He was with people. He was ministering to people. He was healing people. He was teaching at the synagogues. He had a full schedule, but that did not get in the way or that did not Busyness is something that we can see as a full schedule. Hurry is much more of a, of a reflection of what is going on inside of our hearts. Okay, Hurry says, I have too much to do and not enough time. Slowing is not antithetical to work or to busyness. And as we see from Jesus, even with busyness, there was an intent with the pace he went about it, and there was an intent of purposefully scheduling margin, whether that for him was getting away to be with the Father, whether that was a weekly Sabbath, right? We've talked about that a couple weeks ago. If you, uh, I think that was, let's see, Kelly's was the one that wasn't recorded. The one on Sabbath should still be recorded if you want to listen to it. Uh, slowing is also not leisure. It Because we're slowing, that does not mean, oh, it's just we're doing our hobbies, we're doing what's recreationally easy, although that leisure could be a part of slowing, right? It could be a part of Sabbath or some of these other things that we talked about, scheduling margins, scheduling in things that kind of break up the pace of life, but it is not synonymous with leisure. Slowing instead is a fruit or it's a character at the heart of the triune God and his kingdom ethic. There are many that I could list this morning, but I'd simply like to highlight four things of what slowing is. So first, slowing is rooted in trust, or as the biblical authors would say, faith. It is recognizing that we have this dependence on God, that whether we trust him or not, we live in a place of dependence, okay? And it is recognizing him as trustworthy, it is trusting him in his greatness or his ability to do something about it, to manage and to actually hold our lives in his hands. And it's our willingness to entrust ourselves to him. So we trust him, his greatness and his goodness, that he would love us and that he would care for us, right? It's what Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount of, hey, you're, you can live with this scandalous, non-anxious pattern of life, especially about tomorrow, because your father has you in his hands, right? Look at the birds, look at the lilies of the field, right? That is, that is uh, Jesus speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, but it's this life that is rooted in trust. It knows its dependence, and it, it entrusts our lives to the Father. And so because our lives are in his hands and not our own, we don't have to reach and grab and hustle and hurry. Okay, number two, slowing flows from identity. So again, you think about, and again, uh, even just my own thoughts about as I reflect on my life, oftentimes my jam-packed schedule, my hurry comes out of this, uh, my innate desire to produce and to achieve. Uh, I laugh a little bit um, because back when I was in grade school, like, third grade. I remember getting the word, the award for most productive at the end of the, and I, I was thinking about that. I was like, what kind of, like, that's just, it just fits, right? It fits that, like, we're giving, like, grades, like, 
third graders, like most productive, like, yeah, like you're going to be a perfect cog in the wheel of, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the insane uh, working complex uh, that we call our economy and just basic life. So it's, it's this idea, though, that that idea of producing and achievement for me, like that's, that's my temptation to what I root my identity into. It's like, oh, like, I, I know, like, you know, I'm worth it, or I know that this is who I am because look what I produced, look what I achieved, right? So that's oftentimes we're wanting to act and behave and produce in a way that we can be seen and esteemed by others, right? Like, that's oftentimes where and the world is trying to glean its identity from. And the scriptures tell us, like, whoa, like your identity is first knit in you. You are created in the likeness of God, right? You bear his image. You bear the family resemblance. You were created intentionally. You were formed, as David says in Psalm 139, that you were formed uh, with intention and purpose, like there was not a mistake in forming you. You were created with a unique identity knit into you. Scriptures tell us other, other, um, other places that we were created um, and we were born at a certain time and place for a purpose. Like, right, there's so much intentionality. And then if you go read Ephesians chapter one, for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, he says, okay, well, this is your identity. Now you are seated next to Christ in the heavenly places. You were sought after, you were adopted. This pleased the Father. And it was for that he may show his glory and his love through you. So like there's all this rich language throughout scripture that uh, speaks to our identity. So when we are, when we have entrusted ourselves to God, right, we, we trust him in his greatness and his goodness. And then we recognize ourselves of like, like, oh, our identity is, it is rooted here in this very stable and sure thing, then our identity is no longer rooted in what we achieve and produce. And so we don't, as Jesus describes, we don't run, uh, I think it's in Matthew, but he essentially says, like, seek first the kingdom, like the, 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 the pagans and the kingdoms of the world, they, he describes it as running about like, like people are kind of running about like crazy, trying to worry about and trying to grab hold of what they should eat, what, how they should dress, what they should wear. And he's saying like, no, you don't have to run about like the, the kingdoms of the world do. You can rest and you can trust. Um, you, are, you have a rooted identity that is beyond all that. Number three, an unhurried life is rich soil for obedience. Um, this is the idea of, uh, if you want to think back to the teaching that Jesus gave on the different soils, and you think about the seed that was falling on the different soils, the one that took root and started to grow up, it was choked out by the worries and the concerns of this world, by the pursuit of wealth. And what slowing does as we step back, as we don't live our lives at breakneck frantic speeds, as we don't jam pack our schedules, as we create margin, as we give space to walk with the Lord, to be attentive to him and walk in obedience, we actually have the ability to obey, right? We have the ability to hear and then as the word Shema means in Hebrew, right, uh, listen and obey were like kind of combined into one word because it's like, well, if it's not going to result in obedience, then it's, it's, it's hearing, it's not listening, right? It's 
listen and obey. It's this, it's this natural outflow. And it's really, really hard to do that when we have all these competing demands. When we are moving so fast, we can't hear the Lord. When we are moving so fast, it's really hard to be interrupted, uh, not only by others, but it's interrupted. It's difficult to be interrupted by God. It's, hey, God, I'm kind of on my own agenda. Look at my week. It's packed. I just don't, you know, we may sense a stirring of the Lord to obey in a certain manner, whether it's in regards to others or something else. And it's just, uh, it just gets, as Jesus described, it gets choked out. This life of obedience gets choked out by the worries and the concerns of life. And then lastly, slowing is the speed of love. It is the speed that Jesus walked. When we look at him, it is going through life with a particular cadence that allows us to obey the greatest commandment. And the greatest commandment is this, that Jesus uh, took from the Old Testament scriptures, and then he kind of edited a little bit, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor, love those next to you, as you would yourself. Um, and it is really, really difficult to love God and to love others when our pace is such that we don't have time. We don't have time. We don't have space or margin. Um, we are just going through life trying to keep up uh, with everyone who is racing through life next to us, right? And it is really difficult, and I can speak this just from my, any parents in the room? Is it really when you're late and you're trying to get out the door or you've put too much stuff on your schedule or you've extended your kids way past their nap time or their bedtime, et cetera, right? You're working against the clock because of everything that is going on throughout the day. Is it easy to love your children really well? It is, it is so difficult. It is so difficult to love your children well. And that's just like this little like micro example of life itself. You know, we see Jesus with this woman and he stopped and took the time and he loved her. I mean, you can just hear, you know, she like describes what, you know, what happened. She comes to him with fear and trembling and he speaks right to the heart of the matter. He calls her daughter, right? He, um, he uplifts her, he encourages her, and he tells her to go in her newness of life, right? So he, he walked at the speed of love. He could perfectly love God. It said, it said of Jesus, he was always doing what he saw the Father doing. He was always in communion, and he was walking in obedience. And then the other point I'll, I'll make on um, speed being the pace of love is... Um, it is said that the foundation uh, of, our, of what we love is what we give our attention to, okay? And when we slow down, we increase our capacity to pay attention to the others around us, to, to pay attention to the needs around us. We slow down enough to pay attention to the God who is with us, to the God who is in us, and the movements of his kingdom all around us. Simply put, we become aware of our constant companionship with Christ. 
And I want to encourage you this morning that living like Jesus and walking with him daily will largely look like following him into this or his pace of life. A pace of life that ebbs from a deep place of deep confidence and trust, and it flows from a rootedness and a security in him. It's fueled by an insatiable desire to obey the one true God whom we deeply love and to love others as he would have us love them. So to close, I want to challenge you with five ways that you can practically walk with Jesus into this discipline of slowing. And as a disclaimer, these are not, this is not an exhaustive list of five, and these aren't even like top five kind of thing. Uh, there are many, many, many more applications. Uh, these are simply five that the Lord laid on my heart this morning to encourage you all with. So, number one, eat slowly. So I'm not even going to get into like the like uh, physiology and the chemistry of eating slowly. Uh, there are uh, many others uh, who have a much higher expertise who could speak to this. What I want to highlight are two things. Eating slowly, it cultivates gratitude. Oftentimes we just throw food in our face, okay? And um, eating slowly, and again, real quickly, by eating slowly, I don't mean like chewing slowly, although I'm sure that's important for some of us, especially if you grew up with brothers or other siblings. And I remember my grandfather used to say, whoever eats the fastest gets the mostest. And so we would just like, you know, it was like fight, fight to the death over food. But this idea of cultivating gratitude as we sit and as we just recognize and appreciate, it's not just like, you know, oh, Jesus, like, thank you for this food. May, you know, may, may it be blessed. Amen. But it's this, as we're, as we're eating food, we are just like, what? just cultivating this heart of gratitude towards like his provision for us, towards just how he's created this world and how just what, where our food comes from for the, the farmer or the farms who toiled to produce it, right? It's, this, it's just, this, it's just this heart of gratitude that stops and remembers and recognizes like, whoa, like this was, this was provided for me, right? Uh, the second thing I want to highlight is that the meal is the communal epicenter. It is the epicenter of community. It has for the history of the world uh, until our modern context where we have kind of like relegated it to like in the car, right? Done really quickly. It's just maybe a means of fuel, right? Whereas whether, whether it's Christian culture or not, over the course of history, the table or the floor or wherever gathering around food has been this epicenter for community, for building relationships. And so that's another reason to eat slowly, to slow down and eat, to not do it on the go, to not just see it as fuel. Number two, slow your pace of prayer. Slowly and intentionally choose each word. Jesus said this, and when you pray, don't just keep babbling like the pagans. They do that because they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you even ask him. 
intentionally choose each word. And then the other reason for slowing your pace of prayer is to actually make time to listen. Usually it's like, hey, I got, I got five minutes. Let me just like spew off at the mouth and then like, good work, Jesus. I'll see you like tomorrow morning kind of thing, right? But actually communication is a two-way street, right? And so in this time of prayer where we're slowing down, where we are doing more, you know, listening than simply just talking, it gives us uh, the time to uh, not only hear his words to us, but also learn to hear his word, right? Learn to hear his voice and recognize his voice and tune into his voice. We do that and we formulate that in the quiet so that when we get out into the hustle and bustle of life, we can read someone like Brother Lawrence and be like, I don't even know if that's real, right? As far as just like his ability to like, as I'm going about my life, I'm in constant communion with God. That is formed in the quiet um, before we're able to do that in the hustle and bustle of life. All right, number three, slow down in your time in the scriptures. We have this uh, reflex to carry our achievement and our productivity into the scriptures. Uh, like for me, like I've always had this reflex of like, well, if I'm going to sit down to read, like I have to read at least a chapter, right? Where it's just like, okay, like I have to like check that box. Oh, I read a chapter. Or our reflex of like, I got to read through the Bible in a year kind of thing. Like those things where it's like, I, and, and I've done that before, and it felt like a sprint for like 365 days. It was just like fast going. And, um, but, that's our, but that's our reflex oftentimes. It's to take that mindset of um, just kind of how we live the rest of our lives of achievement and productivity and just kind of implant that into our time in the scriptures. Uh, so that's one reason. Um, but it's, this, it's, it's an encouragement to slow down and to meditate, to pray while we're reading, to listen while we're reading. Um, there is a, in the Catholic tradition, there is a, uh, a practice called uh, Lecto Divina. And if you've ever done Lecto Divina or anything like that, it's like read, sit, reflect. Okay, read. And that's reread the same thing you just read. And pause and reflect anything that the Spirit like highlighted to you or anything like that. Pray. Okay, go read it again. Like it is so just like slow and meditative. Um, it is really difficult to do. Um, but uh, we can also slow down and take bites of Scripture, memorize it, recall it throughout the day. Um, it, it's essentially letting the Word of God work deep into us, work into every fiber of our being. And if you guys remember Kelly's analogy from a few weeks ago, remember him talking about the cow? Do you guys remember that at all? It's kind of like that, like the whatever grass or whatever cows eat, it, it's like they're like one of the only animals that can a actually like digest it because of their like regurgitation process or whatever, where they like eat it and they swallow it and then later they like bring it back up and they chew on it again. And that's how they can break it down. But he was giving us that word picture for an idea of like what it means to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. It's this idea of like we take a bite, we chew on it, we chew on it a little bit later, we chew on it a little bit later. But it's 
it's really hard to do that when we're just busting through Scripture, when we're just hurrying through. So um, that's number three. Number four, be patient in the process of being discipled. We often don't have patience for our own apprenticeship. We are very goal and outcome oriented. And uh, we can almost become obsessed with always seeing fruit, fruit in our lives. God isn't doing anything, or I'm not doing anything. Uh, if I can't see exactly what it is, meaning if I can't see the external product, we oftentimes become discouraged. And this is a call to appreciate the slow work of transformation, of maturity. The deep inner work that the Lord does in us and with us is usually not flashy and obvious, such as we would prefer. It is difficult, it is long, it is like a root system that is going down deep. I want to read for you guys real briefly Isaiah, the first part of Isaiah chapter 61, as, as a, uh, a picture of this uh, slowness or being patient in the process of our discipleship. So Isaiah 61 says this, and you'll recognize the first part of this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion and give them instead a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, praise instead of a faint spirit. And then he says this, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they, these oaks of righteousness, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And that idea being an oak of righteousness as it's speaking to the people who are going to be blessed by the Messiah in the future, it speaks to, you think about an oak, right? It's full of splendor, it is glorious to look at, the root system is so deep, and if you think about how long oaks take to grow, it is a long, slow process. But then they're alive for like hundreds of years. Okay, so I think that can be a really good picture and analogy to apprenticeship. It's usually slow, but we are being built into something that is beautiful and is full of splendor, and it is for the purpose of glorifying God. Okay. The last thing here, and Nick, you guys can come up. Number five, be unhurried in the process of making disciples. It is consistent with our culture of hurry and productivity that we would reduce Jesus' command to make disciples and teach them to obey everything he instructed to a succinctly stated flyer or an altar call or uh, how many the number of conversions we've had. And these are all good things, and they are good starting points. But what I want to argue this morning, that they should not take the place of the unhurried work of discipling another brother or sister more fully into the way of Jesus. 
This process takes years, maybe a lifetime. It is hard and it is slow. It is not quick. To close, uh, I want to put up on the screen a, uh, a passage of Scripture that is familiar to many of us. It says this, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now ask yourself this as we close. Is this list more compatible with a gentle, non-frenetic cadence in life? Or is it more compatible with a hurried one? Do we try to fit a square peg in a round hole when we try to live by the Spirit while we live at the pace of the culture around us? Do we put out the Spirit's flame when we don't adopt the pace of living as Jesus did?